Welcome to the Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of the Tim Fowler Show, we will be talking about the code, things you may be getting wrong and things you may find useful the help of special guest Mike Gurdon of East Greenwich, Rhode Island. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tim Fowler Show today. I am Tim Fowler. So years ago, uh, when I was doing conferences a lot, uh, I started speaking at the JLC Live Show in Providence, Rhode Island. And I noticed while I was there that a number of the presenters, both on the show floor as well as speakers, were from Rhode Island. And I, I kept thinking, like, this is such a small state. We ought to be, you know, running into each other somewhere. And the reality is it's a small state, but everybody pretty much stays home, if you will. And so I didn't really run into everybody except at all these trade shows. And so our guest today is one of those folks that I've learned uh, to appreciate and to know a little bit, uh, not because we see each other a lot in person, but because we see each other at trade shows, and I've just uh, become good friends. So today we're talking about the code, okay? So don't everybody just tune out, right? Uh, we are talking about the building code. And, you know, it's interesting, I wanted to have our guest on but I didn't know exactly what the topic would be. So we started talking to each other and he started mentioning some code things. And I said, let's do that. Let's talk about that because we haven't talked about it here on the, on the show. And to be honest with you, I got a little bit excited about the code for maybe the first time in my life. And so I'm hoping that uh, everybody else will get excited about it as well. Now, Many of us are sitting going like, what do you mean get excited about the code? So one of the most common thoughts about the code is it's just a pain in the neck. In other words, government entities have put this thing in place just to make it hard for contractors to make any money, right? And then another thought that kind of pops up when talking to contractors is this this scoffing sort of yeah, well, the code is just like the minimum standard that anybody ought to build to. And you know what? I'm so good. I always build better than the code. Or maybe you're like Captain Barbosa, right? From Pirates of the Caribbean. He's got Elizabeth on the boat, right? This is when she gets, you know, she, she wants parlay and she gets taken to the boat. And, and this is what he tells her. First, your return to shore was not part of our negotiation, so I must do nothing. Secondly, you must be a pirate for the pirate's code to apply, and you're not. And thirdly, the code is more what you'd call guidelines than actual rules. So a lot of us kind of see the code that way. So I'm excited to have our guest on today, and I hope you get excited about the code as well. Steve? 
Yeah, so Mike Gurdon has been building and remodeling in the smallest state in the union for over 40 years. Like a true Rhode Islander, he rarely drives more than 15 minutes from his house for work or play. Visiting Tim 40 minutes away would be an all-day excursion. <laughs> Mike regularly writes for fine home building and JLC magazines and trains other contractors on better business practices and building codes at JLC Live, Deck Expo, IBS, and other construction trade shows. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me, guys. Hey, so I got all excited about it, Mike, and so here we go. Let's first of all, let's just give a, a little more information about your experience uh, in, the, in this business and maybe just start with your actual construction experience. What did you said 40 years, what have you been doing for 40 years in terms of your actual construction experience? Oh, pretty much everything from being a trade contractor and remodeler early on, working for other people on and off, having partnerships, um, good, good ones, luckily. And then, uh, you know, moving like a lot of contractors, you think, oh, I'm a remodeler now, so I'm going to grow into a beer, bigger business. I'm going to become a, a home builder. Then I'll be a spec home builder. And then I'll be a developer. And then, you know, going through that whole cycle and then realizing that what I really kind of like is doing remodeling. So I've, I've, in the last 15 years, migrated back to that. And part of that whole experience of doing remodeling to new construction and back, I've learned it, all of the various trades. You, you drop anything in front of me, whether it's roofing, siding, plumbing, electrical, though I'm not, you know, license-wise not allowed to do those, but I, I understand them in and out. So it's a good thing about being in the business for so long. You get to experience a lot of other uh, a lot of other trades and it's a very, very, very kind of a, a business. It's not just a, you know, you're not just a remodeler. You can get your hands dirty in all kinds of different things. Yeah. So I know you're real active in uh, training. Uh, and so give us a little bit of an insight into, into what you do for training other contractors, the shows as well as the other things you do. Yeah. So you mentioned the JLC live, but you know, we do the remodeling show, the Deck Expo, IBS. I, I do those shows, kind of got hooked up with them after writing some articles in magazines. And then the editors at JLC said, oh, you know, this guy must know what he's doing. And though I didn't, um, and <laughs> trial by fire, uh, what it, it, by having to present to other peers who know many of them at the time when I was younger knew more than me. So I kind of turned it around and said, Hey, I don't know everything. So why don't you guys tell me what I'm supposed to be teaching? So I more or less become a conduit for better building practices in a couple of key areas. And uh, it, it's, it's really, it's super enjoyable. I mean, I love doing it, meeting people from all around the country and I take every opportunity to, to do those shows as possible. I'm, as I'm sure you, Tim, with uh, doing the conferences you do, it's the same thing for you as well. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. And what about, uh, like, aren't you involved here in the state with um, ongoing uh, education for contractors as well? Exactly. I um, work with the Home Builders Association here in Rhode Island and do a lot of trainings for them, uh, both for uh we have a, a registration, kind of like a license here in Rhode Island. So everybody has to take a five-hour class. So I teach that class. So I get to meet a lot of young people just coming into the business and then uh, doing some trainings on mostly code stuff, codes that we follow both nationally and here in Rhode Island. So I do those at least a couple times a month. Yeah, so that was going to be my next question. What's your 
direct association with code compliance? There's the training. Is there something else that you've been doing over the years that kind of gets you into this code uh, discussion? Well, just trying to be ahead of the code officials and understanding what the codes are so that I don't get these red stickers on my <laughs> jobs when they come out to do inspections. That's probably where it really started back in the mid 80s where, you know, we didn't, my, my business partner, and I didn't really know the code. We didn't have a lot of experience. So we'd make mistakes and then the code official go, did that wrong, did that wrong. And then we say, well, how do you know what this is? And the guy told us about the, we followed the Cabo code at the time. Right. He said, well, here's the code book and you guys can buy it. And we did. And then we started, you know, checking our work against the code to make sure that we initially didn't make mistakes and delay the project. And then since then, I've just kind of double down on the code, taking a, a code official class at one point about 25 or 30 years ago to learn what code officials know, how they apply the code. And then it's just become a geek thing since then, just getting to know it as best as possible to translate as much of the important stuff in the code to contractors as I can. So just a little side note here, but I thought of something as you were mentioning, as you were talking, what, what advice do you give to a remodeler or a builder who knows the code and the official is wrong, the inspector is wrong, and, and or they're pretty sure, the, because I've had that experience, and uh, what, what do you recommend for that kind of a situation? I got a, a direct message via Instagram just the other day about just this. It's like, what do I do? And I talk to contractors all the time. It's the way I describe it is you're in a little bit of a quandary because you have to know what you can, how far you can push that particular official. So that's a good thing about if you ha can have a working relationship with the local building official in the community that you're working. That's my first advice. Even if you've never worked in that community before, make an appointment when you're dropping those plans off for that remodeling job and go over it step by step. I call it a, a pre-application meeting. And that way I get to know what the official is. I ask them what they're looking for when they come inspection and where their, you know, where their main concerns are. Anyway, about the project, enough about that. But that gives you an entree to have a, a relationship. And that's when you know whether you've got a grumpy old guy who is going to be his way and it's the only way, or whether you got somebody that you can say, hey, you know, I looked at the code and I really don't understand where you're coming from on this because I read it this way. And that's usually my approach. It's like, I don't say you're wrong. I say, boy, I misinterpreted that. And then I pull the code book out and I say, this is what I did and why I did it show me what I did wrong and why you're looking at it a different way. So it gives them a, a opportunity to say, oh gosh, you know, you're probably right. Or maybe they'll say, you know, it's not that important and they'll let it go. Or I'll learn something in that my interpretation was wrong and that they're looking at it a completely different way, which is, you know, you wear different glasses when you're on a job and, and it's not always that your glasses are the right ones to be wearing at that moment. So that's right. my approach. Yeah, I, I mean, I really like that. And my experience is all, has been, you know, you be nice, you, you be uh, generous, and then whatever the next step is, a couple of times I had to actually meet with their, uh, their boss 
yeah. and and look at the code and go over things and sometimes i just had to bow down and say hey i'm sorry i made a big yeah. mistake here and can you help me right and that that got us through uh the 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 problem i was having so exactly. any any insight as to why we even have a code what what do you do you have any notion of the history behind the generation of the, the code book or the code itself? Well, there's lots of history. It depends on how far back you want to go. If, <laughs> if you want to go back 4,000 years. Oh, uh, no, not that far. <laughs> yeah, but the, the nice thing about that code back then was if you build a house for a man and the house falls down and kills a man, then the contract is put to death. So it was pretty straightforward. Oh <laughs> But the um, but the important thing there was, and you can take a message away, and it actually carries through to today. It's about health and safety of the occupants. The code is not about quality craftsmanship. It's about keeping that building safe for people to be in, and particularly when there's going to be a disaster, be it a hurricane, a flood, or, or uh, an earthquake, uh, and then to be healthy. You know, we've got all kinds of things in the house can make us unhealthy, you know, mold if we get leaks in the roof and they're not taken care of, or it could be plumbing that isn't done properly. So sanitary conditions. So everything's geared towards health and safety. Um, so the you, not going back 4,000 years, but did, did the, the code that we have now, was it 1900s or can you, do you have any idea about when it actually started? So a lot of it has to go back to, a lot of it went back to insurance companies uh, with them kind of pushing for fire resistance. That's really where it came to, or through communities and towns and cities looking at fire resistance. So they wanted to stop houses from burning because, well, that's a good thing for people and for the fire departments and just keeping the neighbor's houses from burning down when one starts. So yeah. that's between insurance and community safety. And then it's just grown from there. So as far as putting a date on it, you can look back at codes that started in the 1800s, 17, okay. 1700s, 1800s. Modern building codes, the ones we use today, you can probably figure those kind of got combined into these like four or five different code groups that started developing codes around the country, what we call now model building codes, sometimes in the, in the 1940s and 50s. And then they've only uh, kind of come together as of 2000 with the right. International Code uh, Council and the I-Codes. Right. Uh, and, and that's where, I mean, it's, so you look, it's really the, this nationwide model building codes really only been a thing for the last 20 years. So in that regard, it's pretty, pretty short uh, duration of time. Yeah, I remember really clearly Hurricane Andrew going through Florida and all the wind load codes and the, the shoreline codes changed dramatically after that. And a lot of it was pushed by the insurance companies. So uh, I think there's a lot of, lot of good that's occurred there. And sometimes I kind of go like, why do we have to do that here? Because that happened in Florida, right? But I understand that it, every now and then Superstorm Sandy comes through and uh, does the same thing that Andrew did uh, in Florida. Right. So before we get into some nitty gritty of the code, like what do you think is the best way for contractor and their teams and that that might be a, a challenge for a lot of contractors the contractor might stay up with the code 
but how do they, how do you think, what's the best way you think for a, a company to stay current with the code? It's going to depend on the jurisdiction. Uh, here, we're lucky in that every time we get a new model building code in Rhode Island, the state will do a training on all the updates. So it's once you learn the basics of the code, um, and that you can do through any number of different online trainings. They Both the ICC has trainings. Um, there are um, the, the um, International Code Council, all the building officials have regional meetings throughout the country where they will actually do trainings and they invite builders to go to those. So just like the conferences that you and I, Tim, go to like the IBS or Remodeling Show or JLC Live, they go to their own conferences and contractors can go to those. So if you're, if you're starting from zero and you wanna get up to a point of knowledge, go to some of those trainings. Um, a lot of the trade shows we go to also have some trainings. So every time you get a training, it's a whole lot easier than reading the code book. The code book is just dry. Um, then if you, want, if you do want to get to understand the code and you don't have those training opportunities where you can either do them online or in person, what I recommend is buying a code book, but instead of buying the basic code book, which costs you about 150 bucks, buy the code and commentary. The code book is about three inches thick. Then they have a companion book that together they're like eight inches thick. So you get like two books of about three and a half, four inches thick. And it breaks down each of the code sections in plain English right behind it. So you can open it up, read a code section, say about hazardous locations for glass in a house in chapter three. And then you can read the code is confusing the way it's written. And then you can read the plain English. And right there, you'll know how to apply the code. You Oh, that's obvious. Why didn't they write it that way in the code? So that I, I would say, um, and then um, talk to a lot of the manufacturers. Uh, what's happened in the code over the last number of years is because so many of the products can't be incorporated into the code by name or by type. Right. The, by default, all of the manufacturer's instructions have become quasi-code. In other words, the code defers to the installation instructions. So whenever, whenever you're installing products, follow the installation guide because that is essentially the code that the building official would be enforcing anyway by the virtue of the ICC evaluation service report. So there's a couple of ways people can learn about the code. Uh, and then develop in a, in a, in a you know, company develop a code following culture where you can train each other. You know, that's really the way a lot of training happens in companies anyway. You know, the senior people, knowledgeable, turn, transfer that to the, the younger people. Yeah, so I'm, I know what contractors talk about at these shows. They quite often talk about clients and how tough they are. I wonder what code officials talk about at their shows. Probably contractors. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you go to those shows, you'll find out. Are you worried about the future of your business? Are you stuck and unsure about what step to take next? Do you have any doubts about your ability to lead through this crisis? Whether it's business, finance, or production, we have the experienced professional coaches standing by to help you and your team battle through these uncertain times. To learn more about our coaching program and to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with our head coach, Doug Howard, Visit remodelercoach.com today. Now back to the show. 
All right, so let's get into some nitty-gritty. And uh, I think everybody that listens to the show knows we do a little bit of preparation ahead of time that just to make sure things run well. So you've given me five things that we're going to just go through that are common mistakes that the listeners may be interested in knowing about. So the first one, I'm just going to announce them as we go through, and then you can talk about them. The first one's tile setting. What, what is that about? Yeah, most people don't know that there is some code language in there about tile setting. And it's done as a, uh, a reference to a standard, which, you know, a lot of times you think you go look at the code book and everything you need to know is in there, at least with the residential code, but that's not the case. A lot of time they reference other standards. And this is primarily for water resistance of tile um, in walls, showers, and baths, things like that. Yeah. So it refers us to a standard. And when you go and look at that standard, it's like 120 or 150 more pages. And when you actually read that standard, after you pay the 45 bucks to get it, you realize that your tile setter probably isn't setting tile to meet the code because they're not following that standard. So, you know, so right there- what would be the thing they wouldn't do? What would be the thing they wouldn't do? So it might be the way they do moisture resistance. It might be even the grout selection or the tile selection for a specific area. It might be the setting bed, the material they use to setting the tile. There's, it might be the uh, spacing of, of studs or of floor joists uh, or the span rating for the, the, uh, whatever the underlying product is. Um, and a lot of that would end up kicking back to the manufacturer's installation instructions. So, you know, there's a, there's, you know, it's kind of hard to get into a yeah. specifics without an example there to say what, where you might be falling, but yeah. with, you know, take for instance, large format materials, large format tile or yeah. stone has to have a certain amount of support under it to resist any sort of uh, damage to it in the event pressure against it. Yeah. So there's lots of stuff in there. All right. What about flashing thickness and size? So when I think of flashing, it could be on the roof or on the wall, but a lot of contractors, you know, pick up what's at the local lumberyard, say, oh, I need a cap flashing over a door, or I need a step flashing. But when you look at the code book, a lot of the flashings that are sold at the lumberyard, just because they sell it, doesn't mean that it meets the code. And there are, there are wall sizes that have to, like on a step flashing, has to go up the wall and down onto the roof a certain distance. Uh, the code calls for five inches, except if you use a cer certain brands of shingles where the brand of shingles requires you have a five inch exposure on the wall and on the roof. And in that case, the code defaults to the higher standard, which would be the manufacturer's requirements. So it's not always cut and dry, black and white looking at the code. Yeah. And yeah. then a lot of the thickness, a lot of the thicknesses of the materials that are sold for flashing, particularly with aluminum uh, flashing, might only be half the required thickness of the flashing that is called for by the code. And what makes it hard in the code sometimes is the flashing pieces and parts are in three or four different chapters of the code in different parts. So you don't see it all in one spot. And that's right. one of the things that when we, when, when I do trainings is try to bring all those pieces together, the three different chapters and say, Hey, you need to read this part, this part, and this part, put it together. And then you know what thickness and what size we need for these different locations. Yeah. I've been really, I remember buying step flashing that aluminum step flashing first time. And I went, there's no way <laughs> that, that this, I mean, I wasn't even that smart. This, <laughs> this won't work. And, and yet a lot of people sell it and use it. All right. What it's about just, mechanical ventilation? So there's a whole 
yeah, there's a whole section for mechanical ventilation in the code book. And as we build houses, just by default, they're becoming more tighter, especially if you're using some of those sheathing integrated water resistive barrier products where, you know, like zip sheathing or weather logic, where we're putting tapes on the joints, all of a sudden the house is getting tighter. And when you're getting a tighter house, you have to put in a mechanical ventilation. And it's one of the parts of the code that because I think a lot of building officials come to the code compliance side or building officialdom uh, from the carpentry trades and because a lot of us builders and remodelers are from the carpentry side of things rather than from the mechanical side the HVAC side we overlook that part of the chapter we say oh we got a sub coming in they take care of that well they don't always and we have to put in uh, continuous ventilation in the houses uh, meaning it runs 24-7 and it just brings in a trickle of fresh air into the houses because that's what happens when you build a tight house by default or by design. Yeah, I just always leave like a few places where the house isn't tight and that way I get air exchange. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just want to ask a quick question off of that, but you, you have the building code, uh, you know, for general contractors, remodelers, builders. Then you have the mechanical code, the plumbing code, electrical code. How well versed do you feel the remodeler general contractor needs to be on the details of the? And then there's so much that you have to leave up to the specialty trade of plumbing, electric, and HVAC. You know, it's interesting, and we could we could go so we could do two hours on this alone. But <laughs> what, what I would say is that first off, just to, to frame it back to the code. The International Residential Code was what most of us in the remodeling business will follow. It has all of the portions of what you just mentioned, Steve, the mechanical code, the plumbing code, the electrical code. It has those portions of the big, thick plumbing and mechanical codes that are relevant to residential construction already packed into the IRC, the International Residential Code. So instead of it being a thick three-inch book, the part we need to know for mechanical, for yep. heat and all that, or for plumbing is only probably 10 or 15 pages. So it's easy to review. So that's a good way to get a, a, a sight, insight into what the plumber or the electrician and so on trade has to be uh, knowledgeable about. And the key things that you need to know, like slope of pipes or what's probably even more important for remodelers is distances for things like yep. how far apart we need to have those outlets. What's the maximum space yeah. or for plumbing fixtures, how much space do you yep. need between a wall and a toilet yep. or vanity? Plans, yep. So that helps you to design things, especially when you're you know, and working in an existing house and you got to dial in, you know, measurements down to the quarter of an inch because it's a really small footprint that we have to work with. Yeah. Yep. All right. What about ha house wrap? Yeah. So the only permitted house wrap in the code book is tar paper. There is no other permitted That's house. No wrap. way. Yes way. Are you pulling my leg now? Nope, nope. The only one, the only product that we can put as a water resistive barrier on our houses, it says, it says tar paper and it gives some specifications for an ASTM standard. And then it says, or other approved materials. Uh -huh. And whenever you see that other approved materials, that approval part is conditional on the local building official. Okay. So I have talked to contractors in the country who work in communities where they, 
the local building official, for whatever reason, does not let them use a plastic house wrap. They have no choice but to use tar paper. And that's perfectly within the purvey of the local official. <laughs> but where most of us in the real world work is we're using a plastic house wrap or a water-resistant barrier that's bonded to the, the sheathing that we put on the wall and that we tape the joints. And all of those, in order to comply with the code, like I mentioned earlier, we have to follow the manufacturer's installation guide. So with all of the house wraps, as an example, you can't use a hammer tacker with a hammer tacker staple to put that stuff on. You have to use almost all of them that I've ever read the instructions on. And I've read like at least 20 different companies. You have to use a cap nail or a cap staple and you have to follow the frequency, which in some cases is like six inches apart and 12 inches over the whole field of that sheet. So you can't just put a couple of hammer tacks on. That's not going to do it. You got to actually physically hold that material down with a bunch of these cap nails or cap staples. And it's a lot more involved than what a lot of people think. All right. So the last common mistake, manufacturer's instructions. Uh, maybe we talked about this already a, a little bit, but what else do we have there? As far as instructions go? Yeah. Um, you know, it, think about all the other products that we install um, fiber cement siding, all of our windows and doors, uh, composite roofing materials, all of those things are not explicitly described in the code. So the manufacturer's installation instructions and probably as importantly is their evaluation service report. And these aren't things that are going to be stuck on the, the product when it gets to you. You're going to have to go to the manufacturer's literature uh, page on their website. You have to do a little bit of research. So it's not just that it gets delivered and you put it on the wall the way you think it's got to be installed. You should be installing it, even though the inspector isn't maybe going to see that because it gets covered up. But in order to you know, prevent a problem in the future where if we didn't install it properly and then it's discovered a year, five years later that there was a problem, the reason that this product failed or the assembly failed is because we didn't install it properly. And you can bet those attorneys are going to be looking at every little thing you did wrong when they have their engineers go out and inspect it. And then you don't want to be hung out to dry for the lack of having followed the instructions. Yeah, it really begs for companies to use, always use the same products because then you then you know you're getting the right, as long as you learn that product, then you know yep. you're, get, you're doing it right. Exactly. Let's shift over to a little more positive side of it here. <laughs> and I think you, again, you've mentioned this, that maybe there's some things that contractors would find useful that they don't even know about at this point. So let's go with the first one here, box headers. What are we talking about there? Yeah, so structural headers inside of houses, if you talk to any drywall contractor, they'll tell you that a lot of the cracks that we get in walls, particularly around windows and doors, is because the, the headers shrink and swell. Anytime we can avoid wood that can shrink and swell over time, which it will, um, then you can minimize those kind of cracks. So for most houses, for your average size window, three, four feet wide, you don't even need to put in a, a conventional structural header. You can use the sheathing if you're using uh, roughly half inch, 15, 30 second sheathing on the outside of the house, which a lot of us do. And if you just follow a certain nail pattern, just putting nails at three inches apart on your 
you know, across your top plate and across a, a flat header board, that takes the place of a structural header. It's almost like making an eye joist, but instead of having that web in the middle of the, the two flanges at the top and the bottom, you're nailing it on the outside. So that's one example of what's in the code that a lot of contractors overlook. So my guess is you better get that approved by your local building department before you do a whole house that way because it, it's already in the code book it's drawings are there and everything i would yes if, right. if, if it's something you haven't used before then yes tell the local official you're going to be using box headers yeah, but yeah. i've had some wow. some building officials come out in towns i don't usually work in and they scratch in their head they're like well, where's the header and i yeah. show them in the code book and I, oh okay i've i've heard of that i've never seen it before good job <laughs> okay what about rim joist headers so if you're on your bearing walls if you're putting you know a, a second floor on there that rim joist that's supporting the um the end of the the, the joist itself that you nail in if, as long as you don't have any joints in it it can serve as the header they have a new table which came out a couple years ago in our model code for single ply headers. So instead of doing a double two by 10, they have ratings for a single two by 10. And in many cases, a single two by 10 spanning three or four feet. As long as you put joist hangers on those joists that are going into that rim joist, you can eliminate the structural header because it's now in the rim and it's up there in the floor system. And I do all these things because it minimizes the amount of lumber. And as you all know, lately, though the lumber price is almost doubling in the last two or three months that, yeah. you know, if I can eke out an extra, you know, two by 10 here and there, or actually a lot more than that, right. uh, that that's money that I can save either my client or you know, the business. All right, last thing, frost protected shallow foundations. Now, this is something I started using. Now, it, 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 most of the country where most new construction is going on is down in the Sun Belt. So they have very shallow uh, frost lines. So they don't have to worry about putting a foundation down deep in the ground. So this would only be applicable for contractors working where you've got a frost line of, say, two feet, three feet, four feet, uh, where you don't have to actually dig down to the frost line uh, by using strategically located insulation on the exterior of the foundation, you only have to go down 12 inches below grade, even when you have a four foot or five foot deep frost line. So for doing small additions on a house, rather than digging it out and pouring a frost wall, if you're going to go slab on grade or something and working in a backyard with hard access for a um, excavating machine, you can actually hand dig or use a mini machine, hand dig out frost protected shallow foundation, and then build up from there. It's essentially a slab on grade, very shallow footing portion for uh, cold climates. <laughs> wow. You know what? <laughs> I, I knew this was going to be interesting. <laughs> and I, I, I almost regret that I'm not in the business anymore. No, that's not really true. But anyway, uh, this has been absolutely incredible. We're pretty much out of time. But like you said, you know, maybe we could do another, maybe in six months or something, we can come back. You be writing down stuff because just those last, uh, what, eight things that we talked about, you know, issues and then possible solutions for other things are just incredible bits of information that, uh, you know, once we have them, then we become uh, more versatile, I guess, in the way we build and the way we view the code. So um, 
I, I, Mike, I just want to thank you so much. And I hope to see you again, you know, in person someplace, uh, you know, like 3,500 miles away at a conference, but we'll see each other, I'm sure at some point, but we'll definitely have you back on. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me as a guest. I enjoyed talking with you yeah. guys. It's really great, Mike. Thank you. Take care. Bye now. Well, Tim, I did not put Tyvek up, right? <laughs> <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> and I overbuilt my headers and uh, I probably race, wasted some digging. You know, this whole thing with the code, you know, the code book is so daunting. Oh, it is. It's, oh it's just, I think we tend to wait till we get caught and then change things. And uh, that's why I was asking about, you know, how do you get this information? And it just strikes me that instead of kind of running from the code, mm -hmm. it's kind of like what I don't know won't hurt me. I think remodelers and builders ought to be looking for code training. I mean, yeah, Mike has yeah. changed. I mean, again, no, it's, I, I, I'm for, it's a little too late for me, I think. But, no, no, but I'm know, geeking out a little bit. I'm about to go grab my old code book <laughs> off the shelf and just take a peek. Yeah, they ought to be, people ought to be looking for it online, from the Builders Association, from the trade shows, whatever avenues they can find. Because I, I, I think Mike's right. Getting someone to explain it to you is going to be a whole lot easier than trying to read it and digest it. Uh, some of you would like that. Most of us won't enjoy that at all. Yeah, and for the people that I worked with uh, when I first started, there was always this defensiveness of inspectors, right. of the code, and avoidance. And it's just, you know, it needs to be adapted and looked at as a subcontractor, a vendor, a, a part of the process, a part of the team. And uh, no, training is, is optimal. Now, I, I didn't know the resources available when I started. I, right. I gave money over to get a license and I was handed this gigantic book that I couldn't <laughs> read, you know. So... <laughs> You know, I, I think there there does need to be mandatory training, but also, you know, take it upon ourselves. I was just also trying to survive at that point, too. Right. So, I think the licensing, I think what Mike was saying, the licensing in various places now requires some code training. Yeah. As well as business training. Uh, and so I think that's a good thing. And, yeah. Uh, well, uh, that was uh, that was that was really uh, a great podcast. So we want to thank Mike Gurton for joining us today, and we always want to thank you for listening to another episode of the Tim Fowler Show. And remember, at the Tim Fowler Show, we're working hard to eliminate it is what it is from your vocabulary. This has been another episode of the Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com/consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.